Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. My name's Fiona Sutherland. I'm a weight-inclusive dietitian and eating disorder specialist from Melbourne, Australia. Thank you so much for being here with me today. And this is a really, really cool, introspective, self-reflective episode with my colleague and friend, Nikki Estep. Now, I was very lucky to be able to share some time with Nikki in person. I know. I know. I really miss my in-person time. We're kind of in the thick of COVID-19 right now. And if there's one thing that I'm really feeling, it is that lack of personal contact with uh, not only my clients, but then also with my colleagues as well. So I do know that I'm not alone, uh, but being in the thick of it means I'm starting to feel a lot of feelings. And Nikki has some thoughts on feelings. So Nikki Estep is a very experienced uh, eating disorder specialist dietitian. Uh, one of the other things we share too is that uh, we don't actually talk about here. I think I need to reserve it for a totally different episode. Is is Nikki and I have both uh, have both been specialists in high performance sport and in particular classical ballet for many years. So. Nikki works with the Houston Ballet. I work with the Australian Ballet School. Yeah, so we didn't even kind of get into that, but hmm, I think I might put that on my list for a future episode. So in this episode, Nikki shares how she began working in this space and her experience moving to private practice. And most importantly, for the purposes of this episode, she introduces us to EFFT, which is Emotion Focused Family Therapy. It's a therapeutic approach for dietitians and therapists in eating disorder treatment. We are so lucky because Nikki actually steps us through the EFFT modules and demonstrates how the module addresses self-blame, shame and avoidance and then goes on to give us examples of how it might sound in practice. Nikki also shares how EFFT has the ability to address clinician blocks. Eek! You know that part where we have to do a little bit of introspection? Yes, so Nikki brings all the goodness and invites us to look and take a little peek at what might be getting in the way for us. Nikki also very, very generously shares what she's learned about herself through practicing this family inclusive approach. You can find Nikki at her practice, which is Mindful Eats Nutrition and uh, her team is there too. So Nikki is based in Houston, Texas. She is a real Texan and I adore her. She brings with her such an energy and generosity and I really hope that you enjoy this episode. So if you're new to this podcast, if you're new to the Mindful Dietitian and you're curious to know more, the website that you might like to take a little peek at is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and there you'll find all 
kinds of information about online courses and live courses which have had to be postponed for 2020 but not to worry we'll be back bigger and better than ever in 2021. In the meantime you can dig into there's a variety of short courses and longer courses including the uh, body image training that I developed with Marcy Evans uh, several years ago now and also eating disorders in sport. So if you are a sports dietitian and you're wanting to really upskill in uh, understanding about prevention, early intervention and eating disorders in sport, then that might interest you. So again, thank you so much for being here. I think if I was to name this as a beverage style episode, I would either say frappe spiked with Baileys or mocktail. It's like a really strong cup of tea or something a little stronger than a strong cup of tea. Anyway, that is up to you. Comfy couch time. And here is my conversation with Nikki Estep. Hey, Nikki, thank you so much for joining me here on the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's so wonderful to be chatting with you. I am so excited to do this. Um, I love all of our conversations and I'm glad we get to record it um, on the podcast today. Absolutely. This will probably be the most recordable conversation that we will have compared to other conversations that we have over delicious cocktails, wonderful meals, or on online platforms where, you know, perhaps the conversation is a little less highbrow and, you know, a little more casual. Right. Definitely. So it is wonderful to have you here. You know, you are somebody who is doing some really incredible work in the world. And, um, you know, you and I have so much in common in terms of um, both working with elite um, ballet and dancing organizations, which we will, we can come yes. back to that another time. Yeah. Um, we both um, teach into universities and we have a huge passion for teaching, um, teaching dietitians and, and hosting events and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also as eating disorder dietitians as well. So, yeah. um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, yourself, your work and, um, you know, how you spend your time at the moment. Well, maybe not yeah. exactly right now, considering. <laughs> right. right. Unique times right now. Um, but typically, so, um, well, so I first started working with eating disorders um, almost, uh, almost 10 years ago. I did a fellowship um, that was called the LEA Fellowship, it stands for Leadership, Education, and Adolescent Health. And it was a unique opportunity for me to work with an eating disorder program, inpatient program and outpatient program. And it was interdisciplinary. Um, we learned all about adolescent development and that really sparked my interest in working in the eating disorder community. Um, and at that time, specifically with adolescents, that was also my intro to sports medicine. Um, so that's actually kind of like where everything began. Uh, it's where I made some really strong connections with therapists who ended up, um, you know, uh, my career uh, took a little bit of a turn. I worked in pediatrics, just outpatient, general outpatient for a while. Um, and then one of them called me up and was like, okay, I really think that you need to 100% work with eating disorders. And that's when I moved into private practice, started uh, focusing my work on working with eating disorders and kind of the rest is history. And that's what I've been doing for the last uh, six years um, is working in outpatient um, eating disorders. Yeah, fantastic. 
Now, one of the areas of eating disorder work that I know is quite unique to you is um, your more recent involvement in emotion-focused family therapy. So I was wondering if you mind kind of helping us to understand what is EFFT, a little bit of the background, and then stepping us through um, even the role of the dietitian, et cetera, et cetera, because I think it would be um, uh, wise to mention that, you know, for a lot of these therapeutic approaches, sometimes dietitians are like, whoa, 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 hang on a second, put the brakes on. That is the therapist's role. And so, you know, I, I think you are, case in point where dietitians have a very pivotal critical role in being able to understand these therapeutic approaches and how it um, most definitely intersects with the work that we do with individuals and and families so i'm going to let you have the stage and i'd love you to step us through efft please Awesome. I would absolutely love to. And I think that, um, I think I'll start with the story of how I heard about it, um, because I think that that uh, will get us uh, started quite nicely. So I was actually at IADEP last year, and I had, um, so while I was at IADEP, uh, Dr. Adele LaFrance, actually, she was one of the keynote speakers. And I believe, I don't even remember the exact title, but I, it was about um, families uh, and, and centering families in eating disorder work. And I sat through that talk and felt um, it, everything she said was, was absolutely what I'd felt in my work with eating disorders that you know I knew that family involvement was important. And yet, as the dietitian, I sometimes felt lost. Um, you know, I, I do practice FBT, and, and I understood those principles. But when it came to equipping families uh, to, to deal with the emotion in the room or helping them, you know, manage the emotion that was coming up, uh, just in like meal support, for example, right? Like there's big emotions that come up in the middle of that. Um, I, you know, that everything she was saying, I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear you um, say these things. And probably the most poignant thing that she said that really was, that grabbed my attention was there's no such thing as an unmotivated caregiver who doesn't get it. And that like, oh, like that just honestly got me to my core because it, um, historically, in eating disorder treatment, especially the last decade or so, you know, we really, um, you'll hear common conversations like, well, this just isn't an appropriate family, right? Like this is, or the mom has an eating disorder, or the dad's verbally abusive. And yes, like, and I'm not saying that that means it, we let that inform how we involve the parents, but we don't let that involve or inform if we involve the parents. And I think that that is huge. Right. So in eating disorder treatment, if we in and there's so much wisdom in this, right? Like we we love our clients and we want to protect them. And so we want to like surround them and like and, and protect them from all of the, the bad things that are happening in their world, right? That potentially contributed to the eating disorder. And yet, you know, they're still gonna go home to that environment. And if we are not centering families and the, like, if we're not putting family, and when I say families, I mean, not just parents, I mean, um, spouses, grandparents, I mean, whoever is that person's loved one or caregiver or, um, 
you know, uh, boyfriend, partner, um, that they, they really have a pivotal role in that person recovering and not relapsing. So, so yeah, so it, out of my own helplessness and not feeling like I knew what to do with families, I heard her talk and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to, I have to do training. And so I actually, I went, um, I went home to Houston and I, I office my, the private practice that I own, I office with, um, with six other amazing therapists and I brought them all together and I said, all right, guys, um, there's a training in two months and it's on emotion-focused family therapy, and we're all going. Um, <laughs> like, we, we have to go to this because none of us know how to work with these really challenging family dynamics. None of us know what to do, um, especially me. <laughs> so, so let's go. And so we went to our first training in April of last year, um, and then we actually did another training in Austin in um, August, and then we actually did a private advanced training with Dr. LaFrance, and then we were going to be hosting a training in Houston, um, but with the COVID-19 pandemic, we have uh, different plans, and we'll be rescheduling that hopefully soon. But anyways, that's that was my introduction to it, so it really was just seeing someone who so lovingly and compassionately works with families and sees them as agents of healing in, in work, um, in, in eating disorder, not just eating disorder recovery, but you know, for the context of our conversation, eating disorder recovery. Do you know what really strikes me as so beautifully compassionate about emotion-focused family therapy and the way that Dr. LaFrance speaks about this particular modality yeah. is that, um, you know, if I think about um, the early days of my involvement in, um, in eating disorders, I would definitely observe that families were actively excluded, parents were actively yes. excluded. And then kind of came um, the advent of FBT where families yeah. were involved, but you make a really good point where families are involved only if they kind of fit within a certain criteria. Yeah. And that then yeah. limits our capacity to be able to help young people to heal within the environment that they live that yep. might not be ideal according to who I'm not too sure because I think all families <laughs> are kind of messed up in so many ways. I mean, right. You know, so right. it's it, what it, whatever is the ideal family anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a parent, you're a parent. I'm very far from perfect. Yes. <laughs> I'm Boy. definitely going to mess up my kids. I'm very acknowledging of that. Yes. Well, it, so, and that's the thing, right? Is that is one of the first thing that she talks about with families is you know, we, we really have to hold what she calls the macro and the micro in mind in these situations, right? So the macro is that, you know, there's lots of different contributing factors to eating disorders, right? We know that there's genetics, there's um, environmental triggers, there's so many things, right? But if we focus on, um, so, so families are not necessarily, like, are not causal. So in the micro of that family system, um, you know, there's so many things that come together that would, you know, cause an eating disorder to, to occur, right? So, um, you know, 
it could be the age at which, you know, whatever, maybe there was a trauma or maybe there was something big that happened in that family system and the age that it happened and the temperament of the child combined with genetics and combined with environment, you know, maybe the, whatever their peer situation is, their um, exposure to media, right? There's so many factors. So a family is not, you know, that is not one, the one causal thing, right? We, we actually can't say that a, a parent directly caused someone's eating disorder, you know, someone to develop an eating disorder. It doesn't work like that. Um, and so that really helps. She's really um, big on reducing caregiver self-blame um, so that they can really feel empowered uh, to help their, their, their loved ones. And uh, the way, and so it's really, it's a mind shift for, for all of us in eating disorder treatment, right? I, I do think that even though we've evolved so much, we do check marks of like, okay, can this family handle it? Can this family not handle it? And the beautiful thing about EFFT is that it's, um, it is designed to be, uh, they call it the one degree effect. Like there's many different principles. And even if a parents only change even one degree, we know that that's going to make a big difference in the family system. Um, so, so yes. So I see SBT as it provides the behavioral component, right? Like it teaches parent if, you know, again, if that family is determined to be FBT appropriate, then, you know, they have the behavioral components, but EFFT is the emotional component. Um, and they are actually studying, there's a few people who are studying using um, FBT with emotion coaching, which is a component of EFFT with it to see if it improves outcomes. Um, but EFFT is also being studied as a standalone family therapy. Uh, for eating disorders with great results. Yeah, that's absolutely just so interesting. Yeah, it really well, is. The, the idea behind like the why do we involve care, our caregivers is that caregivers have a, um, an oxytocin bond with their loved one. And when we utilize that oxytocin bonding pathway, um, the support that, that that caregiver gives is actually even potentially much more impactful than what we do, right? So if we teach parents 10% of what we do and they do it imperfectly some of the time, they will have much more of an impact doing it um, because of that oxytocin bonding pathway. Uh, and there's a bunch of lovely complicated neuroscience, but it's basically um, that oxytocin bond helps. If you imagine the limbic uh, system, which is like the center of the brain, it's on fire when there's a lot of emotions going on, right? So if someone is in the middle, has um, tons of emotions and they're, um, they're in the middle of a, an emotional trigger and they're really struggling and they're wanting to use behaviors, imagine the limbic system is on fire. And when a parent or a caregiver or loved one uh, uses emotion coaching as it's been designed in EFFT, it actually acts as a fire extinguisher on the limbic system. It's literally like it's putting out the fire. Um, so we say if the emotion has taken someone to the 12th floor, um, it's actually bringing them all the way down to the ground floor, which is where when the doors open, it, that's where logic and reason lives. So it puts out the fire in the limbic system and actually builds a bridge to the prefrontal cortex, which is where we know, you know, people can actually access logic and reason. 
So that's the, yeah, the, the overview or a simplistic overview. Yeah. So in practicality, what does this kind of coaching sound like? What are the, the language and the words that, that you use? And I, I want to, first of all, just put forward that, of course, um, specific um, tr training and coaching in emotion focused family therapy is compulsory. We don't just take, you know, words and phrases from EFT and place them into our practice. But just to give us a, a bit of an example about how this sounds like specifically around, you know, limbic system activation, for example. Yes, totally. Um, so I, so one of the components, the component that I'm specifically talking about, um, which is emotion coaching, that is, um, I'll give you the framework of like what that, that sounds like. So it is, I can imagine why you might think, feel, or want because, because, because. So let me, do you have an example like of something, let's think of uh, an emotion or a behavior that we would want to coach? Um, do you mean an eating behavior or do you mean like yelling or something like that? Like, okay, let's say like I could, let's imagine we're doing uh, meal support with someone yep. and this is a challenge food. So let's say their challenge food is pizza. Um, let, so it would sound something like this. So I can imagine why you wouldn't want to eat that pizza because it's been a really long time since you've had it. And because this is a really challenging food um, and, you know, your eating disorder does not want you to have it because it has told you that this is a bad food and because you might be worried that if you eat it, you might be triggered to get rid of it and you've worked so hard to get rid of purging behaviors and you don't want to disappoint your team. Um, and so that's what the first part of the emotion coaching framework looks like. And so what that is, each because is just spraying that fire extinguisher on the limbic system, right? So if you imagine someone who is just like, you know, in tears and just can't, you know, like really struggling to get through meal support and you come in there and you say, I can imagine why you wouldn't want to eat that pizza and, and you can make it as deep as you want, right? Like my first two becauses were a little bit more surface, um, but what you're doing is you're getting to the heart of why would this be hard? Um, and after you do the emotional, um, the emotion coaching part, you then step in with support. Okay. So the emotion coaching at the beginning is the, that it's validation. It's validating the emotions that they're feeling in a very specific way, right? I can imagine why you might think, feel, want, because, 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 and then you say, let, I'll sit here with you. Um, how about we use some distraction? Uh, how about we play a card game or turn on some music uh, while you get through um, these last few bites? So you validate and then you back it up with emotional support, which is that I'm here with you. I'm not going to let you do this alone. And then the practical support is, okay, let's use distraction. Let's use our skills. But if you step in immediately, imagine, especially imagining, um, well, I mean, really any of our clients who are struggling, right, um, sitting at the table. And if you step in and say, you can do this, you know, like, I, this isn't so hard, you know, aren't you glad it's not lasagna or I, I don't know, like, <laughs> if there's any one of a million. Right. 
ways that we can respond. Um, and if we try to offer emotional support or practical support without the validation first, which is what that emotion coaching is, I mean, it's like, just bang your head against the wall, right? It, it's not the door, the, the doors aren't open to the elevator yet. For that, for that support to get in. So if you can imagine that first part of it is taking the emotion in the room from the 12th floor down to the ground floor so that our prefrontal cortex is online and the doors are open and that's when we can offer support. Or, or set, and it, it can look a minute, that's when you set boundaries. That's when you, you, right? Like you still do all of those things, but you have to do the emotion coaching first. I can imagine it's a very powerful way for parents to be able to access parts of themselves that they perhaps weren't recognizing before or that they have pushed away um, yes. because, you know, having a young person with an eating disorder is just so damn hard yes. that, you know, that, that you can almost feel unresourced again. Yeah. Um, so I can imagine well, and, it feels amazing. Lose, yeah. Well, they lose access. Well, I don't know if lose is the right word, but they, um, you know, access to their wisdom and intuition gets covered up. Right. And a lot of times it's covered up by that self-blame. I mean, I've not yet met a parent who has not been locked in self-blame in some way. And that looks a lot of different ways, right? So we have parents who are like, I don't want to be involved, right? And actually we have an EFFT script for that. We have EFFT scripts for everything. It's beautiful. Um, but, you know, we have parents who are like, I don't want to be involved, I think that she, you know, I think individual therapy only is what they need. And that is a parent who's saying, I'm so scared that I'm going to screw it up. I already feel like I've screwed it up. I don't want to be, you know, right? Like, it's not that they don't want to be involved, but we can, it's very easy for us to misinterpret some of the, the behave, behaviors we have, we see um, from parents. So, you know, we might have a dad who's defensive and thinks treatment is stupid. And that's, that's an emotional block. And that, that's actually another module in the FFT is really um, helping caregivers process emotional blocks that are getting in the way of them um, really being able to access that wisdom and intuition um, to help their kids. So yes, definitely gives them greater access. What a beautiful way to help the whole family yeah. to heal as well, because it yeah. is so, it's quite well recognized now that eating disorders are not an individual experience. They are a collective, a family and collective experience as well, including experiences of trauma. And so yes. this, everything that you're saying makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that even if we think about it from a parallel process perspective, you know, what the mm -hmm. young person is experiencing in some ways can be similar to what the whole family unit, the whole family system is experiencing in terms of right. hopelessness, helplessness, self-blame, criticism, yes. high emotions, numbing, avoiding attachment, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, it, it, it the model sounds, I, I'm just sitting here going, okay, right. I'm going down that rabbit hole now. I certainly know a little bit about um, Dr. LaFrance's work and you and I have spoken yeah. a bit about EFFT. Um, mm -hmm. So in terms of, if I can just loop us back just a little bit and ask yeah. about how EFT addresses um, self-blame in the, in the, maybe um, in the parents 
in the family system and maybe in the young person as well because I know mm -hmm. that that's very much part of session one with FBT is it's a target for session one um, right. and so I'm so curious about that because I, I personally I believe it is foundational when working with families so do you mind stepping us through that? Right. Totally so um, there's multiple ways that I mean the whole the whole um, framework was really developed with this idea in mind that we need to reduce caregiver self-blame. So there's mo there's um, lots of ways to get to the caregiver self-blame. Um, so I'm going to go over like the different modules, like what the modules are, and then I'll kind of tell you within each of those models how it does it, or modules how it does it. So um, module one is behavioral support. Uh, module two is emotional support, which was that's the emotion coaching that we were talking about. Module three is therapeutic apologies. Um, yes, which is a, like a, uh, such a, an amazing part of it. And then um, the and part of the therapeutic apologies is working through emotional blocks. So helping parents see their emotional blocks, which is in one of them. So they do um, there's caregiver block care work, which is not, um, well, I'll circle back to that in a minute. And then the next thing is processing um, emotional blocks and clinicians. So Ooh, we're definitely talking about that. So, yeah, so that <laughs> is one of the um, really incredible parts of it is that she's very much like, okay, the clinicians are part of and we really have to be working as clinicians to help each other process our emotional blocks and understand um, like, how, yeah, like how we fit um, into this and how, you know, what's happening for us in the room. So, um, so all of the, so the only thing in EFFT that cannot be practiced by dietitians is the, is chair work. And so, so this is what I love about it is that all of these components are 100% accessible to dietitians to use in practice and to use, like I actually do a lot of work um, individually with families and I do all of everything I can except for chair work. Um, and then I pass that along to my lovely therapist colleagues. Um, but the, so one of the ways that they address um, self-blame is just creating, one of them is creating awareness of different parenting styles. Um, one of it is the awareness of, you know, the, the micro and the macro that I was talking about and saying like, of course, it's not your fault, right? And uh, in doing, not having these EFFT skills, it did not cause your child to have an eating disorder or have mental health problems, right? So we, we actually purposefully call them advanced caregiving skills. So these are skills that you only need because, the, you know, there are these unique things that came together. Um, to create a situation where your loved one um, has mental health issues. And so we're going to equip you with advanced skills you wouldn't need otherwise. And so we're like, it's like layering in, like we are constantly trying to reduce self-blame, right? It is not your fault. Um, if we sense like as we're doing the work that there is self-blame, so you, there's um, some chair work around that that can be done that is all about like she has several chair work pieces that are all about reducing self-blame which is pretty incredible um the so part of the um so part of the working through emotional blocks uh is i don't know if you're familiar with animal models with janet treasure 
I love the animal models so much. And um, whenever I talk about this in terms of, um, you know, training uh, dietitians, you know, when we're talking with talking with families, you can see everybody squirming in their seat because what I do is I put up a picture and I say, what does this represent? You know, so for example, we'll put up the jellyfish and what does the jellyfish represent? Okay, is it, you know, is it the stinging tentacles? No. What, you know, and um, so it's really interesting when I say, oh, you know, this is the, you know, um, lack of firmness or, you know, um, changing changing one's mind all the time and, you know, flip-flopping flip or not being consistent, you know, all mm -hmm. these things. And you see everybody squirm because they're like, recognize it within themselves, which is what I love about Janet's animal models. Right. So that's what, so um, uh, Janet Treasure gave Dr. LaFrance and her co-creator permission to use that as part of the EFFT. So that's one of the foundational principles when we're working with parents is we talk to them, okay, in, in times of stress, how do you respond emotionally, right? Are you more of a jellyfish who, you know, all the emotions come out? Are you more of an ostrich where you stick your head in the sand? Um, and then in times of stress, what is your caregiving style? So are you a rhino? So you're like, ah, like get it done. Like you just gotta do it. You gotta sit there and eat that pizza. I don't wanna hear about it, right? Um, or, and there's love behind all of it. Um, or are you um, uh, the kangaroo, right? Do you, do you put, put your loved one in your pouch um, and protect them and say, oh, this just seems too hard right now. We'll, we'll try a challenge meal another time. And, and so that even can help reduce self-blame because it's like, okay, everyone has the, this is so normal. This is so human. Um, we, and even as, and we talk a lot, like even as clinicians, we have these styles, right? How many times have we, have I kangarooed a client, you know, and not push them because I wanted to protect them? Um, you know, and sometimes I'm a rhino and I'm like, okay, we just need to, <laughs> need to do this. Get this shit done. That's right. We, we, we've all been there. We are all in this together. No one is alone in this. So it's it's very much reduce. It's reducing shame overall. Like all of it is very much about reducing shame. Um, there's another. So there's a, a tree, which I don't know if you can see. Oh yes, yes, I can see that. Yes, Nikki is showing me a tree on a screen. Um, so what we're going to do is is describe that for you. Um, right. So if you imagine a, a, a tree, and then Nikki is going to step us through um, what's what's around that. So this is very similar to an iceberg analogy, where you have the stuff that's you know at the top, and then you know the stuff underneath it at the bottom. But this is using a tree, a very beautiful tree, um, and so the the words or the emotions or behaviors. It's actually the behaviors that are at the top, and then um, underneath the ground at the roots are the emotions that are fueling those problematic behaviors. Right. So the behaviors at the top are denial avoidance, criticism, rejection, accommodating, enabling, blame, defensiveness, um, and how many times do we all get caught in those behaviors, right? How many times do we see it in our clients? How many times do we see it in our parents? Um, and then the emotions fueling it are fear, grief, helplessness, hopelessness, self-blame, shame, um, and it's amplified by burnout, yes. which is huge in our eating, with our eating disorder families. Um, 
and and we so yeah so there's lots of different ways that self-blame can be um, addressed in EFFT uh, it's it's literally woven into ev like every single principle and because um, uh, experiences like self-blame and shame and avoidance are core not only to our human experiences but they're core um, core disconnectors or core blockers aren't they from being able to do the courageous work that requires some um some mental fitness like a significant right. amount of mental fitness so i think that that's i really love it's very clever actually and i don't mean that in a, just a cognitive way i genuinely mean yeah. that in a, in a heart-centered way it's very clever the way it addresses and targets the core human experiences yeah. which actually can both um uh, can perpetuate recovery and also um block recovery i guess for a family right. unit right so when i'm working with families you know i we have um animal models and we have the tree laminated <laughs> we can like you know pull them out you know just as uh, you know as it makes sense and um, especially like let's say a parent is having a hard time understanding their child's behavior um, and we pull out the tree and it's like what do you see like what are the behaviors you see and then what might you think um, are the emotions that are fueling it and that's really helping that parent connect to that instinct of like what is, what is my child feeling um, because they all they know that they've just you know they're their own self-efficacy with understanding what's going on. I mean, it completely disrupts the, the parent's feeling of self-efficacy with parenting, uh, with navi navigating complex emotions. I mean, this is all new um, and can be quite overwhelming for families. So it really gives them a framework and a language to use. I love that because often um, a family's early experiences when they're concerned about their young person, yeah. um, sometimes their early experiences can actually, mm, I'm just going to be blunt, I guess, can kind of make things worse in terms right. of blame and shame and avoidance. And, yes. and then there's delayed, delayed treatment or delayed care. Oh my goodness. And it becomes a big kind of giant mess. Right. Well, and even think, so, uh, you know, all of this also, uh, I mean, EFFT has also increased my own self-efficacy with dealing with emotion in, in the room where, I mean, it's all a vicarious process, right? Like we're all, you know, we're all learning and improving by, um, with this model. And, you know, it has helped me when I am faced with a family that's giving me a lot of pushback, for example, whether it be on stepping up to a higher level of care or whether it be um, a parent questioning a goal weight range or, right, I mean, whatever, you can think of a million and one ways where sometimes we, we get, um, you know, pushback or maybe, um, you know, wh whatever it is. And, and it's given me a way to be able to dial in and say, what is that, what's fueling it, right? What, what are they feeling? And are they feeling helpless, hopeless? What's their worry, right? I mean, a lot of times it's parents are genuinely worried, you know, with goal weight range, it's like, well, uh, and there's likely some underlying fat phobia in that, right? Right. <laughs> the, the loving, so one of the principles of EFFT is there is a loving and protective function of every behavior, right? 
for our clients, for, for the caregivers. And so what is it that that parent is doing by saying, I don't want my child to gain too much weight? They're saying, I, I want to protect them. It's actually like a kangaroo move, right? They're like, I want to protect them from the world, or maybe it's their own internalized bias, whatever it is. But we can see that there's a loving and protective function. And we can also emotion code so that I know fear right? That, par that parent is afraid. And so we say, I can imagine you might be terrified to, for your daughter to gain more weight because you're worried that um, she will, um, she'll, she'll really, um, she'll start to spiral and she'll start to use more behaviors because she'll feel so uncomfortable. And you might be worried that she, um, that if she spirals or, um, or, you know, that her emotions will be too big and she can't handle it and that she might end up, um, uh, harming herself, right? She might end up committing suicide. I mean, really it goes that deep, right? Like parents' worries are usually centered in, I'm worried that my child is going to end up dead or um, homeless or ostracized from society. And, and no, no parent wants that for their kid, but that's usually what's fueling that fear is usually what's fueling their emotional blocks. So anyways, I mean, I use, I emotion, nobody, I don't always say all the becauses, uh, like I don't always say because, I just like naturally put that framework into the language that, you know, it sounds like it's me talking, um, but I, I emotion coach parents in the room. I emotion coach my clients. Um, I, I use it all the time. I use it with my kids. Um, it, it works. It, it really, really works. And what the minute that I validate a parent's emotional experience and validate their fear, they, I'm bringing that elevator from the 12th floor down to the ground floor, and now we, we can work with each other which is really so powerful. Yeah. Nikki, I am so curious to hear more about the very last module and that is about clinician blocks because I think, you know, ah, oh, yes, we're both giggling like, yeah, this is the gold. This is the gold because it would be, um, you know, it's worth us acknowledging that, that within eating disorders, there has been this kind of, um, there are power structures and there is a hierarchy. And although it's well established and well acknowledged and accepted that there is some um, self-reflective work that is inherent in doing any kind of therapeutic or healing work, my observation yeah. is that also has a limit to it especially when it comes to our own emotional landscape and when it comes to things like our own internalized um, weight bias and how that just totally. seeps out in so many ways that would not be our intention necessarily, but is born of our own, our own fears and our own um, sadnesses or grief or memories or, um, you know, sense of disconnection or whatever it is. So, oh, let us have it. <laughs> Uh, all right. So there's so many. So all of the um, the um, the material available for helping parents with blocks or caregivers with blocks or or what are used with the clinicians as well. So one thing that you can do and and what um, my group that I do the therapists that I work with and like we all work very closely together. So my dietitian practice and this group of therapists. Um, it, it's very well known and if you're doing group supervision or like or maybe even case consultation it's good to just call out like 
um, what's your go-to, right? What is your go-to response? So are you a kangaroo or are you a rhino? And we all, all the kangaroo, we need to know who, who are the kangaroos in the room and who are the rhinos? And so one of Dr. LaFrance's um, request or maybe even requirements is a kangaroo cannot get, um, does not need to get, if they're wanting to kangaroo with a client, they cannot get supervision from a kangaroo. Yes. <laughs> so they need to go get supervision from a rhino or there needs to be a blend of styles, of caregiving styles in the room. That way we're not all getting um, in these traps, right? Um, or we're not just hearing what we want to hear. <laughs> so there's also, um, there is also chair work that can be done and actually dietitians can participate in this chair work. So you can, we can conduct it because it's not for a therapeutic purpose, if that makes sense. So it's very simple. It's a script. Um, and in the, um, in the train, basic training, you learn how to do it. Um, so since, yeah, since you're not entering into a therapeutic relationship with your colleagues, um, you know, it's just a way that you can practice and like, and, and kind of get a sense of, okay, what is, what's my block? What's my emotional block? Um, we also will use the tree, um, to, uh, to look at it. Um, we also, there's this caregiver traps scale and clinician trap scale that we use. So I actually did supervision with um, an EFFT therapist uh, last week um, with another therapist. We shared this case and part of our supervision before we came to it, we had to fill out the caregiver um, trap scale, which is, um, while we're talking, I'm going to pull that up so that it's easy for us to talk about. Um, and then we also had to pull up the, or we had to fill out the clinician blocks, so, or clinician traps. So the caregiver trap scale is, so I have, so when we fill this out, we fill it out as if we are the, the loved one or the parent. Okay. So the, um, the parent or caregiver. Um, so on a scale from one to seven, uh, one being not likely, seven being extremely likely, um, I worry about being rejected by my loved one. I worry about alienating other family members or significant relationships. I worry that my loved one will be seen as abnormal or mentally ill. I worry that my loved one will miss out on uh, normal activities or special occasions. I worry that I will say something I regret. I worry about being able to follow through with interventions like setting limits. Um, I worry about causing suffering in my loved one. I worry about breaking down or burning out. I worry about coddling my loved one and preventing him or her from becoming independent. I worry about having to face my own past along the way. I worry that my loved one's symptoms will shift. I worry, worry about pushing my loved one too far, uh, leading to a worsening of symptoms, withdrawal, running away, suicide, so that's what I was talking about before. Or I worry about being blamed um, or being to blame if it doesn't go well, right? And so we can get a sense of like, what are we feeling from that parent, right? It kind of gives us greater access, like puts ourselves, greater empathy and puts ourselves in that uh, parent's shoes. And then the clinician trap scale, this is a good one. Okay. So this is <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, can't wait. So I worry about being disliked by caregivers or clients. 
I worry about causing suffering to caregivers and clients. I worry about going into an emotion and not knowing how to process it. Oh, hello, dietitians. Mm-hmm. Right. I worry about putting a strain on a couple, child, parent, or care or loved one relationship. I worry about pushing a caregiver or client too far, leading to a worsening of symptoms, suicide, self-harm, uh, or termination. Yes. I worry about making decisions that may be unpopular with or contrary to the wishes of other team members. Mm-hmm. I, worry, uh-huh, I worry about bringing a critical or dismissive, bringing in a critical or dismissive caregiver, leading to too much distress for the client. Um, I worry about having to face my own triggers, vulnerabilities, or wounds along the way. Same. Yep. I worry about being blamed or being to blame for lack of progress. I worry about blaming the client caregivers for lack of treatment progress. I worry about feeling or appearing incompetent Mm. or lacking confidence. Mm. I worry about being overwhelmed or burning out. Wow. Yeah. Those are some powerful ones that, and so the idea is that anything that you circle as a seven, so meaning you really, that's very poignant for you, that's something for you to look at and take to supervision or even just talk about and put it out in the room. So, I mean, in our, right. So in supervision, so we have group supervision, like sometimes weekly, every other week with an um, EFFT, like certified supervisor. And, and this is what we talk about. We talk about what's coming up for us, which is huge, 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 huge. Um, Such a big deal. Um, so that allows us to get that all out into the open and into the room and so that we know exactly what we're dealing with, right? We're facing what's coming up for us, what's triggering for us, which is a big deal. It is a big deal. And it really requires a space where anything that comes up is really held with reverence. Yes, because it is a absolutely. big deal. It's a big deal to express that. First of all, to acknowledge and identify it. Second of all, to express it. And then third of all, to have that sense of trust that it's going to be held with the with the reverence that it needs to be. So I'm so curious to ask you a little, um, and of course, only as much as you feel um, that, you, that you wish to share. I'm so curious to ask, you know, what have you learned about yourself and the way that you work with others and, um, yeah, that, that maybe you hadn't recognized before, hadn't acknowledged or, um, you know, because I think power, these, these experiences can be so incredibly important and powerful for us as human beings, let alone being dietitians, being health providers, being parents, you know, just as humans. Totally. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'll start with animal models. I will tell you that I am, and my whole team, you know, knows this, I am totally a kangaroo, right? Like I, I mean... I, we all can be a mix, right? So it depends on the client, the situation, but more often than not, um, you know, I have more of that like nurturing, come, let me put like, put you in my pouch and protect you. And like, I just, 
you know, I, you know, anyways, and it can be such a beautiful and lovely thing. It is a beautiful and lovely thing, right? There is a loving and protective function in that. Um, I also have to make sure that, um, that I'm holding boundaries and setting limits and right. And that I am, um, providing enough of that practical support. I'm very, very good at emotional support with my clients and being empathic and being in their shoes and validating emotion. It's really stepping up and um, not being afraid. So some of the parts in the clinician block work about, you know, I'm worried about making things worse, right. Or triggering something in them, like really looking at why am I like, why do I feel that way? Why am I worried about that? Um, and, and really feeling comfortable to challenge them. Mm. I, think that, I think if I look at the clinician trap scale, I can identify with any, with almost all of them at some point in my career. Right. So like, uh, when I first started working with therapists, I was so afraid of feeling incompetent or lacking confidence or lacking competence, right? Like worried about what are other people going to think of me? Um, and that's my own stuff to face and that I have faced and gotten supervision and therapy about. And then um, being disliked, oh my goodness, by the caregivers and the client or even parents, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things that come up. I think that when I filled it out, re and it changes all the time. It changes with each case. It changes with what's going on with me in the moment, right? And we can all acknowledge that, that we're all growing and evolving humans. And the things that are triggering for us one day are not going to be triggering for us the next day. Um, so we've done a lot of work and on a lot of these. The one that came up recently, um, we had a really critical caregiver. And um, myself and the therapist, actually, while we were in the middle of supervision, had this reaction to bringing in the parent, um, like, oh, we don't want to do that. This is going to be hard. Uh, and it, for both of us, what was coming up was bringing in a critical or dismissive caregiver might lead to, to too much distress for the client. So we were wanting to be protective of the client. So can I tell you, as an, as an Australian, you may or may not be aware of um, the, the kind of the evolution of the kangaroo and the pouch. Is it okay if I step you through that? Please, please, please. Okay. So kangaroos are marsupials. And what happens is that the, when the kangaroo is born, this tiny, it's like the size of a piece of rice. It's tiny, mm -hmm. tiny, tiny. And it literally um, crawls up. I think it takes days even crawls up to the teat and then mm -hmm. I don't know somehow manages this little tiny thing manages to nourish itself which is some kind yeah. of a miracle and yeah. then obviously grows 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 um yeah. into this little joey like which is a baby mm -hmm. baby kangaroo mm -hmm. and I would say, I mean, because kangaroos vary so much in size, you, you'll get where yeah. I'm going with this. I know I sound like I'm waffling, but this is no. all to, to provide context. So um, wallabies are like small kangaroos and they also have mm -hmm. pouches. Mm -hmm. And then large, large kangaroos can be really large, but they're usually the males. Um, but, you know, even large female kangaroos. So they kind of vary in size from, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I would say three foot to five and a half foot, I guess the females anyway, yeah. and their pouches 
are very elastic and yeah. you know they can fit a decent sized joey in there now the reason i'm telling you this is because when the joey gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it becomes almost like an older child or a younger mm -hmm. teenager these mm -hmm. bloody joeys still try to crawl into their mother's pouches and it is wow. the funniest thing to actually watch because yes. they're they're they look too big to fit, right? Yeah. They're noticeably smaller than their mothers, but they, oh. they look like like older child kangaroos. Really? I mean, God, how do you explain yeah. it? I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. But the Australians yeah. listening will be like, oh, yeah, totally. They, they, yeah. they bounce up to their mums. And then oh. what they'll do is they go head first down oh. into the pouch. And then their legs, you know, the legs are really long and their yeah. tail is often just sticking out. So right. you've got this like, older child kangaroo or even young teenager head yes. down bum up tail out just yes. hanging out of the pouch wow. and you can tell the mum's like dude what are you doing yeah. just yeah piss off like seriously right. Right. it's time to leave the pouch, the pouch. right <laughs> so anyway i think it's you know, I think it's kind of, it's, it, it's a nice expansion on the kangaroo, you know, because, because there is a time for nurturing and, and protecting and, and as kangaroos do. And right. then there's a time to get the hell out of the pouch. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and I didn't mention it, but there is another animal. So, um, so the, the animal that's in the middle of the kangaroo and the rhino is the dolphin. Oh, yes, the who dolphin. Is, yeah, who is, you know, steadily, who is sometimes leading and sometimes following, right? Who's doing a mix of both, right? So it's not that kangaroo or rhino are bad. Like there are things inherently that are, you know, so it's exactly what you said. Like, so yeah, when the, the mom kangaroo, you know, kicks the older child kangaroo out of the pouch, that's like, it's setting boundaries and limits and saying like, this is like, hey, time to, time to develop some, um, some skills right yeah. Uh, yeah to be able to self-soothe um, pouch is closed yeah. right pouch is closed <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly so when i so also i was just thinking at the IJAP talk the other incredible thing that dr lafrance did was she um had five um people or i don't know it was like five to ten people there um in the room clinicians in the room volunteer to come up on the stage and say hi my name is nikki i'm a clinician and i have blocks when i am and then she uses the tree when i feel um hopeless or when i feel like any one of the things i am more likely to um avoid or like do the behavior at the top of the tree and so that's another actually way that you can um you know, in your case consultation groups or when you're working with other clinicians or even in supervision, it's really starting off and saying, this is what I feel like my block is on this case. And looking at the tree and saying, this is the feeling that I'm, I'm feeling helpless myself because I feel like this case isn't moving fast enough, right? And when I'm helpless, I'm more likely to, you know, blame. Or, I mean, it could be any one of the behaviors at the top of the tree. Mm -hmm. um, but she, she so lovingly calls out the human experience that all of us are in this together. We are all clinicians who have blocks. We are all clinicians who come into the room with a history. 
um, with trauma, with our own stuff. And, and we need to be able to talk about that more and talk about how, um, how it may be impacting or not impacting the work that we do. Mm-mm. Yeah. And not feel, you know, a common trigger when we talk about our um, thing to come up is defensiveness when we talk about this stuff, right? Um, but it's really like lowering those defenses and saying, no, this is just a human experience and it's okay that, for us to talk about it. Absolutely. And I love how this really fits into, um, you know, the, the current, or not current, but the more recent conversations we have around unlearning and yeah. around de-experting ourselves because we have all been, I guess, trained in our healthcare, um, you know, in our, in our healthcare training has been the experts in, in and it sets yes. up these power structures. It also yes. falsely, it also falsely leads us to believe that somehow we don't have very, very, very similar experiences to our clients and distances us from them. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We really, I mean, to take from motivational interviewing, we can't get in, in the expert trap, right? (laughs) You know, that is, I mean, it is a trap when we come in and feel like we have to be the all knowing expert in the room or that we are this hierarchical person, like, you know, um, it's, yeah, when we, when we don't acknowledge our own vulnerability and our own emotional triggers, then we're going to, we're going to have a blind spot in the work that we do. I mean, there's no way about it, um, mm-hmm. because we're, we're humans. Mm-hmm. We're absolutely- Which is why everybody needs supervision. I got the word in. Yes. I try to say it every single podcast episode. I did it. <laughs> Amazing. I, I mean, I, I'm a huge believer. I mean, I, and in, in getting supervision from, you know, variety of people and, you know, who have different ways of thinking and modality. I mean, it, there's, there's so much amazing opportunity out there for supervision. Um, I have grown so much through supervision. I can't imagine doing this work without supervision, honestly. Um, I, it doesn't matter how long you practice, having, being able to bounce ideas off of someone and say, hey, I'm really stuck. Um, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Having someone be able to having a, a supervisor supervisee relationship where you can lovingly call out like, "Hey, you know, I feel I, I wonder if this is an emotional trigger or like what might be what's going on for you that this is coming up." Or I mean, these are all important things. And some of the beautiful things about the animal models is it gives us a framework to understand our own experiences without it getting personal. Like we can create that really lovely sense of, um, oh my gosh, um, the one I, the one, uh, the one trap I usually have or, or the kind of, um, the, the block is I, I can terrier, the terrier. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes. yeah. So the terrier is the enthusiastic, cheerleading yes. kind of right. um, character trait. Um, right. So when I'm feeling incompetent, I tend, this tends to bring out my my um, my terrier. Um, right. Yeah. So it can it could be a lovely way to go because in in the most recent training that I did with Shane Jeffrey, I noticed in the Melbourne training after we introduced the animal models the participants were using that language. They were saying, oh yeah, when I, I, I notice I ostrich when, yes. um, I'm, when I'm, uh, when, I, when a parent becomes critical or something like that. Yes. Um, so to be able to notice these things in ourselves without saying, uh, um, without kind of coming, coming down critically on ourselves, um, just right. allows it to hold us, hold it with softness really. 
Well, it, it's allowing us to decrease our own self-blame. Yes. Right? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, that, that, right, that's it. Yeah, because when you're presented with, I mean, and that's, that was the beauty of, of her having people come up in front of hundreds of people and say, hey, I'm a clinician and I have blocks, right? When we have a framework and a language for it, it's like, oh, wow, we are part of this collective human experience. And it's normal to have blocks. And it's normal. Yeah, I feel, I don't feel so bad now for being a kangaroo, you know, and, and that, that, because it makes sense. Like, I get it. I, and I understand all the reasons why that's my, um, my tendency to do yeah. that. Right? And I also recognize now when I'm doing, it's like, once you have that insight, you're like, bam, okay. I realize that I'm, I'm kicking into to kangaroo mode here. Um, and it's time for me to go get some supervision from a rhino. Yes, um, for a rhino. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's so wonderful. Um, so, Nikki, we, could, we, we literally could talk about this for hours because I am a definite convert now. Um, <laughs> and although I, I only knew a very, very little about EFFT, mm-hmm. but the, the model itself makes so much sense mm-hmm. in terms of even emotion-focused therapy and how that weaves together with family systems kind of work. Yeah. So I encourage everybody listening, you know, to, to take a look at um, Dr. LaFrance's work. Um, yes. I do know that she does, you know, she, there's plenty of her material online um, and, yes. you know, that's, that's kind of widely widely accessible um nikki also very generously sent me a youtube clip which is only 20 minutes it's really Mm -hmm. fantastic just stepping through the model the rationale for the model and a little bit of the neuroscience too so i'm going to attach that to these show notes so people can just take a look at adele's work um and last but definitely not least where can people find out more about you and then maybe any kind of really um, okay, so hang on a second. I'll ask the first one first. Tell us where people can find you. Okay, great. Um, so my practice is Mindful Eats Nutrition. So it's www.mindfuleatsnutrition.com. Um, that is my group practices website. Um, I have a group practice of amazing haze in um, intuitive eating, eating disorder, dietitians. Um, so yeah, that's really the best way to find me or on Instagram at Mindful Eats Nutrition. Um, the, yeah, that's where, that's the best place to find me for sure. That's perfect. Thank you. And then my second question, I try not to double dip on questions. It's a bit of a, a tendency of mine to double, double up on questions. So one at a time, yes. less of the terrier. Um, so my second question is, what do you, what, do you have any kind of go-to um, books or resources that you would encourage people to be looking to if they're interested in EFFT? Because I can imagine people are listening to this and going, oh my gosh, I'd really love to find out more about it. Is there a, is yeah, there a book or some foundational sure. work? Absolutely. So, okay. So a couple of things. So my, so myself and the um, group of incredibly enthusiastic therapists, um, we actually formed EFFT Texas and so we are um, hosting, well, you know, we'll be hosting trainings um, and have resources on our website. And so that's EFFP-Texas.com. Um, but really the, the mother site is mentalhealthfoundations.ca. 
Um, and that has a wealth of resources. Oh my goodness, free webinars, free videos. Um, I mean, they are all about making this successful for everyone. And so, I mean, really, truly, you could start um, really becoming very good at the EFFT work just by going to that website and looking through all of the videos um, and resources. And they just came out with the clinician manual and you can get it on Amazon. Yeah, so it's the EFFT Clinician's Manual. I think it's called Emotion-Focused Family Therapy um, for Clinicians. Um, and then they also came out with their parenting book. Uh, Dr. LaFrance wrote it with Dr. Miller. Uh, and it is brilliant. It's um, what to say to kids when nothing seems to work, which, you know, <laughs> my own parenting. Um, right. Is, right. Um, I have flipped through it quite a few. I also use it as a resource for parents. Um, so it, it actually has the framework of, it's basically emotion coaching. So it, if you were really wanting to get very good at emotion coaching, it has scripts in there for so many different behaviors. I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, I would say that their website, mentalhealthfoundations.ca, and then those two books would be the best resources. That's so great. Thank you so, so much. I think um, Amazon is just going to get a major blasting now with um, yes. everyone going to, to grab those books. I'm certainly going to line up um, yes. because I, I really enjoy that field of emotion coaching and um, yes, particularly, you know, my own parenting, I'd be looking for some support, especially at the moment when we're all very up close and personal to one another, which is, um, you know, <laughs> challenging in lots of ways right. absolutely yep oh my goodness um nikki thank you so so much this has been a really remarkable conversation i have enjoyed it so so much and um you know i really look forward to reconnecting in person hopefully later in the year and um again thank you thank you so much yeah thanks fiona for having me i really You're appreciate welcome. it yeah talk to you soon sounds good well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.